Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. Good to see you. Uh, my name is Jonah, and I'm one of the pastors here. A um, couple of quick announcements. Uh, we had to cancel men's school last week for our last week. So if you've been going through that, tonight is our last week. Didn't want you guys to forget. So if you're planning on coming and finishing, tonight is your chance. And then also, this is our last week on our uh, Crooked Tree Making Sense of Messy Families. Thank you, Justin. Um, and so at the end of the service, there's going to be a panel Q&A time where it'll kind of be like TED Talk format where there'll be a microphone up here. And if, you know, stuff's come up, um, thoughts you have, confusions you have, but what does the way forward look like for you? Uh, there'll be therapists, social workers, counselors up here that, um, it's one, it's kind of amazing the men and women that we have in our church, the professionals that are really gifted at this stuff and that they're here and willing to help us. Uh, and so they'll be here to answer questions you have. There'll be food uh, for your whole family afterwards. So if you want to stick around, um, we're hoping that'll start around 1220, 1230. So that'll be right after the service and hope you can stick around. Um, if you don't recognize me from the last couple of weeks, I have been away on paternity leave. If you know what that means, we had a baby. Um, thank you. Uh, we named him Salem Hawthorne. High expectations. Give a kid a big name. See what happens. Uh, and also, we love the Maple Syrup Festival in Salem, Indiana. Um, right? Y'all at the Sugar Bush? Y'all going to the Sugar Bush? Couple weeks? Got to decide how many days you're going to go. Can't go, just one. Um, so he and mom are doing very well. Uh, they're still at home on quarantine. And um, because, you know, everybody is sick. And me and the other two got sick. I have three children now. And me and the other two were sick pretty much the whole time. And so we explored various stores of southern Indiana and greater Louisville. It was fun. It's amazing the fun you can have with a three-year-old at a Bass Pro Shop, for instance. Um, <laughs> this is pretty intense. So um, it's fitting to have a child during the series on making sense of messy families where we're talking about, you know, the, the messes we've inherited, the messes we've created. And <clears throat> it's gotten me thinking about my children and the lives that they have inherited and will make for their own. And, and in some ways, uh, little baby Salem is uh, very fortunate. Um, he was born in the United States, which carries all kinds of advantages if you were born versus being born in other places. Um, he's, his mom and dad still love each other. It, at least that's what I've been told. You know what I mean? Like, we're still working on it. Y'all know mid-30s with little kids and jobs and making it work, but like we're ma- mom and dad are making it work. We're committed to each other. He's got a stable home. He's got, um, you know, a family with an income and with health insurance and retirement. And you know what I mean? Like he's in a relatively stable, healthy spot. I mean, he's pretty fortunate for that. He's got a brother and sister that are excited about him being in the family and want to take care of him. And so in some ways he's, he's lucky. And in other ways, he's not so lucky. Um, so his dad, that would be me, is a bit of an emotional roller coaster, right? What you see before you is the product of six or seven years of regular therapy. Like, I can go real high and I can go real low, and it's not always sure when that's going to happen. Um, he's, he'll have to deal with being a pastor's kid, which if that means nothing to you, um, I'll let you in on a little secret of the trade. That is... Uh, that carries lots of negative connotations in the church business, right? Most pastor's kids, it's not uncommon, I shouldn't say most, but... Pastor's kids frequently struggle with their faith and feel a lot of pressure, you know, to be this perfect kid and the fruit of all of the labor, and then they go crazy, and then there's jokes about the... So he didn't, you know, have any say in that, but he's going to have to deal with being a pastor's kid. You you go out even further, he's born um, into a history of heart disease and a history of cancer. Uh, In his family tree, there are addicts, 
and adulterers and workaholics and deadbeats who just walked out on their family one day. Uh, He'll grow up in a city, New Albany, and a culture here in southern Indiana with a bit of a chip on its shoulder. Some of you have been here long enough to remember when our city's slogan was the sunny side of Louisville, which like how insecure and defensive must you be as a people in a town that that is how we define ourselves. It's, you know, it's like opening up a pizza shop that's like a little better than Domino's, you know, like <laughs> cheaper than Papa John's. You know, like. And all of this will affect him. All of this will shape him, and particularly these early years. And then you, what complicates this even more is that at some point, right now he's innocent and perfect and pure as the white driven. He's never done anything wrong, right? Today is his three-week birthday, and he's just never done it. He's just perfect, right? But soon he'll do dumb, and this, his own twisted heart will show up in twisted decisions, and he'll create his own branch of our own messed-up family tree, and then there'll be the Salem-Hawthorne branch with all of the dumb decisions and mistakes and things that his own brokenness created. And so I've been thinking about both of, you know, he's fortunate, he's not so fortunate. And the the thought that struck me probably the most is, you know, there's not much you can do with a newborn other than hold them and look at them and make silly noises. And you're thinking through all this and uh, it's just really impacted me. It struck me that he has not had a say in any of those realities. Didn't choose any of them. Didn't get to vote. As far as we can tell, there's no like prenatal lottery where the disembodied spirits are like, I choose this family. You know what I mean? Like he was just born into this with all of these realities that he simply hasn't voted for. He didn't vote for any of this stuff. But maybe the more difficult reality is he will still have to learn to be responsible for it. He, he will either learn how to live unto God in light of all of this, or he will allow these things, these realities, to steer his life sideways and keep him from experiencing the goodness of God and the beauty of all he could be. In some ways, as we've seen in these first two chapters of Matthew, um, Jesus' story, God's story is like this, but in some pretty profound ways, God's story isn't like this. Maybe the most significant, other than like the theologically obvious that my son isn't God, just in case any of you are wondering, he's not God. He's not, doesn't have any of the omnis, omnipotent, omniscient, he doesn't, he's just a kid. Um, But maybe the biggest non-theological difference like that between God's story and my son's story is God did choose his family, as we've talked about, right? He did choose who his mother would be and his father and all of the circumstances and the culture and all of that that he's been born into. And if you've missed the last few weeks, I really encourage you to go back and and listen to that either online or on our app. Um, Because those realities and what all they communicate reveal something about God's heart towards us and what he's trying to show us in coming as his son. Um, So God's story isn't like ours in that he got to choose some of these realities. His story is like ours, though, in that Jesus had to learn to live in light of all of this. Uh, to grow and become mature and wise and to live faithfully unto God. He had to somehow make sense of all of these sideways twists and turns his life had taken. And the grand culmination that we get in chapter 2 of these first crazy 12 or so years of Jesus' life is that this all happened in accordance to the prophets. That's this big grand final lesson we get of all of this. So, 
Today we're going to try to make some sense of what does that mean and what does it mean for us. And to crush any hopes you have right on the front end, maybe you're here and you're like, today's the day, all of these lingering questions will be perfectly answered and I'll have it all sorted out. The scriptures very rarely give us answers to the why questions, right? They give us great answers to the what and the how questions. Um, not so often the why questions. So if you're the kind of person, you know, you've been shaking your fists at the sky or, you know, saying, why, God, why? I don't, I probably won't have much for you this morning. Um, but the scriptures do give us beautiful insights into what we are to do and how we are to do it in light of what we've lived. Now, it'll be important for the sake of the sermon to try to get you guys confused for the next few minutes. That's a big goal I've got right now. I'm coming out of the gate swinging, I hope over the next five to ten minutes, to make you feel a little bit lost and a little bit confused. This is intentional, two reasons for it. Well, the stuff we're doing is confusing. It's about to happen in these verses. Um, I have two requests for you. The first is, as you feel confused, to just kind of bask in some of the glory, the beauty, the splendor of the Bible. Um, because we will see all kinds of ways that Matthew is connecting dots that have been strung out over a thousand years or so, and he's making sense and connecting this. And it's just, man, it's hard to imagine that some people could write a book that's as complicated and unified as what the scriptures have. So if you start feeling confused, just soak in it and say, God, this is amazing how you were able to connect all of this together. And then secondly, just give yourself permission to be confused. Because for the, the sake of today's sermon, it's less important that you understand the ins and outs of the complexities I'm going to talk about, uh, or that you could pass a test on them, as much as you just acknowledge how complicated what God is up to is, and how complicated what you've lived has been. Does that make sense? It's more important for what we're doing today to understand the complexity of the human life and of God's human life than it is to understand theologically all the ins and outs of what we're about to talk about. Because we'll see if you think it's complicated or not. I think it's pretty complicated. Here we go. Verse 19. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who are trying to kill the child are dead. If you remember... King Herod uh, hears about a king coming in little town of Bethlehem and decides to kill out all of the boys to, you know, nip it in the bud, any chance that he would have of a usurper coming up. And we're not sure precisely how many children this was, uh, probably 20 or 30, two and under, right? So 20 or 30 toddlers, which is horrific, the idea of sending troops out to go kill 30 toddlers. Um, if you know anything about King Herod, historically, or what's preserved about him in the history books, this is no big deal at all. Um, Herod was a maniac. And I'll just give you one example. Um, when he died, he, in his will, ordered everyone in the royal family, dozens and dozens of people, um, he ordered everyone in the royal court, rather, to commit suicide as an act of solidarity and mourning for the king. So imagine if your boss put in his will, hey, when I die, you have to commit suicide to show how, how committed you were to the company or something like that. You know, like, this is the kind of crazy man that he was. So ordering the death of 32-year-olds is no big deal. Joseph and his family had good cause to be afraid of this maniac. But he dies, as all tyrants do eventually. And an angel comes to Joseph and says, go back to Israel. Now, in chapter 1 you see this kind of climax happening from the silence of God to the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, right? And he's called names like 
um, God with us, or the God who saves, or son of David, son of David, I was about to say son of Abraham, that's David and Abraham, son of David, son of Abraham. You know, it's this like, go from silence to Jesus is on the scene, and now in chapter two, there's this crashing down into the obscurity and the humility of God to come and be a family. This is an up and down pattern that you'll see all throughout Matthew. So we get these high exalted names in chapter one, and now in chapter two, the angel calls him the child, and in a little bit, it we'll call him the Nazarene, which I mean, no offense by this, but saying you're from Nazareth is like saying you're from, you know, like a suburb of Paoli, right? We're like, Paoli is cool. I go there. I'm not trying to be offensive about Paoli, but it's not like a booming metropolis or where you're like, Paoli, boom, that's where I'm from. Like Nazareth is just nowhere's town. There, it's a, not even a blip on the radar. So the one who is called God with us, God who saves, is now called the child or you know, like the kid from Nowheresville. It's this descent into obscurity and it culminates in the family moving to Nazareth. And what Matthew's doing here is something profoundly theological by saying these early years of Jesus's life end in obscurity in Nazareth. So in, in chapter one, he's showing us who Jesus is by the people in his family tree and the titles that are given to him. So remember, a biography in this day was written to show why should you follow somebody. And so Matthew is saying you should follow Jesus because he's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He's the God who saves. He's the eternal God for everyone. It's these huge titles. And he's descended from this people and this people. Now in chapter 2, Matthew is showing us who Jesus is through the places that he went. It's a geographic biography of sorts, showing how has God identified himself with his people through the places that they're going to. So follow with me here in some of the geography of Jesus's early life. He was born in Bethlehem. This fulfills the, excuse me, the promise of a son who would be born in Bethlehem, the son of David. And this is God displaying for us that he keeps all of his promises. Then for the sake of safety, Jesus flees to Egypt, which for us it's just not that big of a deal. It's like Egypt, yeah, that's how the story goes. But for uh, a Jewish person in this day, it would have been so confusing and paradoxical to have to go to Egypt for the sake of safety because Egypt is where your people were slaves. That was the land of your oppression. And so God is saying, I don't just know what's happened to you, but I, I am, I'm identifying with the suffering of my people. I myself will go back into the land of slavery and oppression. There's, last week we talked about this, we get a reference to Ramah. This is the place of exile for God's people. He doesn't just identify with our suffering, he actually identifies with our longings as well. He's called out of Egypt into, exile, or into Israel. This is a new beginning, a new exodus. God is saying, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of my promises. What, what happened before in shadow is now happening in substance. And this should be a time of excitement, a, a time of fulfillment where the king is coming home and he'll make all things new again. And instead, this is what we read. When Joseph learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son, Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. He learns that the maniac's son also happened to be a maniac. One crazy person was traded for another crazy person. So what happens? Well, he gets another dream. And it turns out the king who's coming back isn't going to come back into prestige in a place like Jerusalem, but he's going to go to a place of total obscurity, Nowheresville, Nazareth. Now, up to this point, 
Well, even through Matthew, you, very little of Jesus' life made sense to anybody else. Um, th- think about Joseph with me for a minute. Uh, we talked about him some a couple of weeks ago when, when Travis preached. Um, I've been thinking about Joseph a lot. Maybe it's because I'm a dad and I've been holding a baby a lot lately. But if, if you think Joseph's life was this like, nice and neat staged series of events and he had perfect faith, why would angels have to keep showing up to him in dreams? I'm, I, I love this girl, but she's pregnant. I can't marry. I can't go through this. I'm going to do the responsible thing and I'm going to divorce her. I'm going to be the, do the righteous thing and divorce her quietly. And an angel shows up. There's a dream. No, marry the girl. The most powerful person in the area wants to kill my son, who I guess is the son of God. Dream. Angel. Go somewhere else. The king dies. Angel shows up. Dream. There's a new crazy king. Angel shows up. Dream. You want me to live where? Angel shows up. And a dream. God has a clear mission of what he's up to. And Matthew is showing us how Jesus is the fulfillment of all God said he would do. But people did not recognize it at the time. As best we can tell, it took about 30 years for Matthew to write this book. And here we are sitting thousands of years in the future with millions of pages of reflection written about what Matthew has written in the life of Jesus. And, And we can start connecting some dots. But no one at the time was like, oh, you know that Joseph and his family, you know, because... God had a son to them because he promised that he'd be born into obscurity. They went to Egypt so Christ could theologically identify with the sufferings of his people in their slavery. And this is all, hap- this is all according to plan, Joseph. No one saw any of that coming. In, in some beautiful, unexpected ways, Matthew is tying the entire Bible together in these first two chapters. So when all humanity failed in the Garden of Eden, Israel was recruited to be the way of salvation for humanity. They were to be a light unto the nations. So Israel would live separately. They would live differently. And the whole world could look at that and say, that's what life with God looks like. And they would be drawn to it. Spoiler alert, they failed spectacularly, repeatedly, over and over. They abandoned life with God. So what does God do? He sends Jesus of Nazareth to come and succeed for them. He goes to the places of their failures and their fears, Bethlehem, Egypt, Ramah, Israel, and ultimately to obscurity in Nazareth to form a new Israel out of the twisted roots of this crooked tree, a new people, a new nation to go and proclaim that the king has come. And this is the grand resolution we get. This fulfilled what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene, and which is great to read until you start looking for where did the prophets say this? There is no smoking gun that's like Isaiah 17, 12. It says he will be called a Nazarene. It's confusing. There's a few potentials, uh, a few perhaps implications, but it's not obvious which prophet said this. And, and here's what I think the point is. I think God is trying to show us that there's always something bigger going on than we are aware of. That there's always something more happening than what we know. All of this happened in fulfillment of my good plan, even when you couldn't see it. So for Matthew, this is really important. Fulfillment is both about predicting something will happen. He will be born in Bethlehem. That's a prediction. That's telling the future. But fulfillment means something more than that. It also means, you know, the kind of the movement from maybe shortwave AM radio to 4K digital HD 3D TV, 
right? Like something that you got a glimpse of or a sense of now is in vivid detail. It's an immersive experience. So the things that were happening in shadow, fulfillment means now they're displayed in substance, what it's really about. And Matthew is saying all along, this is what people had been pointing to. And often the picture that's being revealed is difficult for us to see or understand at the time. So think about this, think about the context of like, okay, God's got a good plan for us, but put yourself in Joseph's shoes, right? Like I married this girl and here I am going to Egypt with this kid that a king wants to kill. Put him in Egypt for all these years, living as an outsider, as an exile, as, you know, think about the fear of living in that culture for Joseph. Think about the excitement of being on the road back home and finding out someone still wants to kill you. So you don't go to the palace, you go to some podunk town in the middle of nowhere. Imagine Joseph laying in his bed his first night in Nazareth, staring at the ceiling and thinking, some grand plan you have, God. And I don't, I don't think I need to press too hard on any of us to resonate with this feeling of like, is this is how my life is supposed to be? This is the good plans you have for me, God? You led me down this road? I mean, I don't know anyone who's made it to 35 that hasn't had distinct moments of saying, what are you doing with my life? This is not the plan that I had for me. This isn't what I thought we were up to. And we would be totally naive to think that this isn't the experience that Joseph has had. None of this made sense to him at the time or the people watching. But throughout Matthew and including this morning, we see what millions have come to see. All of this happened to fulfill what had been promised. So how does this help us make any sense of messy families? I hope you're a little bit confused at this point. What? The theological geography of Jesus' life or fulfillment and what's going on here? Well, one of the most important lessons that I think we get from these first two chapters, and if you're a parent, I beg you to teach this lesson to your children. Life is hard for everyone, period. If you have fallen into this place of thinking that you're the first person who's discovered that life is hard or it's uniquely hard for you. Well, listen, comparative suffering doesn't really work for anyone. Every, someone's always got it worse. Someone's always got it better. But we just can't make the mistake of thinking that something's gone sideways if life is hard because life was hard for God too. Jesus had a hard life, not just emotionally, but in the practical realities of how he made a living and where he slept. Life is hard for everyone. And I think we can begin making some sense of our messes when we accept that simple reality. Every one of us, we have to accept our losses and limitations in life, especially the ones that we didn't vote for, especially the ones that were imposed upon you. We see beautiful pictures of faith in adversity. You know, Travis talked about um, the power of obedience in his sermon. And then he had this middle section that I thought was just so wonderful. It was so helpful. Even more so than seeing this example of like Joseph being faithful in adversity, we see a God who identifies with us so he can empathize with us. He knows what it feels like to be us. And I think he chose a hard life so that we would draw near to him in the midst of ours. We wouldn't see him as so radically different or unaware of what we deal with and what we live in. And if we can make that turn, which is a difficult, it's a difficult turn to accept our losses and limitations, accept the reality that life is hard. I th the deeper turn, the, 
I would argue the more difficult one is that then to be able to trust that God is, is somehow holding all of our stories together. M- meaning, your story hasn't spiraled out of the control of God, or, or he, he, your story hasn't uh, gone off the rails, and now God is confused and anxious up in heaven. I've seen, I've seen few things that spiral someone into despair and utter exhaustion, quite like the, the endless hunting for answers does. You know what I mean by that? Trying to connect all of the dots. If only I had said this, then my son wouldn't have done this. And then if that hadn't happened, then this wouldn't have. Why did this happen? What could I have done differently? Endlessly shouting why and trying to connect dots can exhaust the soul. Because we're pressing up against infinite mystery when we're pressing up against the grand story of God. It's like swimming down to the bottom of a, a bottomless pool, or at least a pool that, as far as we can tell, is bottomless. And that, man, even if you're an Olympic swimmer, at some point you're going to get to the bottom and be out of breath, and the pressure will be too great, and it will crush you. One of the, one of the greatest mistakes that we can make in trying to come to terms with what our families were and were not is thinking that... Uh, Meaning requires answers or explanations. I've never found someone who landed on an explanation and it suddenly made sense. Well, all that stuff happened because dad was an alcoholic. The pain is gone now. That, that never happens. You can, if you got the guts, you can go read the book of Job and, and see at the end, you know, he never gets an apology. And he probably lost more than you'll ever have. He never gets an apology, he never gets an explanation, never gets any kind of answer for what's happened. We cannot make the mistake of thinking meaning requires answers or explanations. And some of you won't have the opportunity to get them anyway. Some of you are longing for some form of reconciliation with mom or with dad or with whoever, and that person passes away and that door is slammed shut and there's words you're longing to hear that now literally cannot come. No one at the time understood what God was up to in Jesus' life. No one fully grasped what was being announced, but none of that changed the fact that God was holding the story. Centuries of silence before this, a crooked family tree, a scandalous birth, a murderous king, a backwoods town, God was holding all of this story together. It was confusing. It probably made next to no sense at the time. And now we can see it didn't change the fact that God was there and he was holding it all together. It doesn't have to all make sense for you to trust that God is holding your story. Next week, we're, we're going to look at the start of Jesus' ministry and, and we're trying to wrestle with, okay, if we, if we can make some sense of all of this, how do we move from mess to meaning? How, how do we... How, what do we do with this longing we have for more life or, or to do something and not just be paralyzed by the sins of my past or my family's past? And so our next mini-series is called History. A little cute play on words, his story. See it? Let your mind wander. Think about it. And, and how to find the more that we're made for. This is a big deal. We're, to be made in the image of God is to have infinite fire burning in your soul. You want more. You want bigger. What do we do with that? How do we find that? And we're going to follow Jesus's journey from obscurity to being this movement leader over the next few chapters. But listen, if we do not become a people who know that God is holding all of our lives, none of this will matter. We won't step forward into anything new or different with confidence if we don't have a deep assurance that God is holding our stories. 
And please don't look up and be like, think that I'm some like perfect model of perfect faith or that if you see somebody on stage, they've got it all figured out and they never doubt and they're never worried. Like ask my wife about what my anxiety level the last three months has been like. It's been off the charts. It's been the most anxious time of my life. And I have no idea why, really. I've got some theories, but it's like we're sitting here dealing with that. So when we forget, when we doubt, we can come back to Jesus's crooked tree. It's what a the gift the Bible is. These stories don't change. It's right there. And we can come back and be reminded God was holding all of this story. We can remember his life emerged out of a crooked tree and it ended hanging on a tree. He felt agonizing pain and abandonment, absolutely to forgive your sin, but also to give you concrete evidence that God is for you. In the, in the midst of darkness and confusion and pain, we need to find something that we can hold on to to be reminded that God is for us and he's still holding our story. The cross is that for us. It empowers us to rest in our chaos, to accept what we've lived, and to trust God um, that he's good and that he's holding our stories. And, and if we can get that far, it'll open us to this beautiful promise so that every crucifixion leads to a resurrection. Every crucifixion in the Christian life leads to resurrection. Neither the crooked tree of Jesus' past or the crooked tree of his death had the last word in his life. Isn't, isn't it amazing? Some of you in this series have had your mind blown because you didn't know that there were prostitutes in Jesus' family. Why? Because he's not remembered for his family tree. He's remembered as the man who rose from the dead, who conquered sin, who is victorious and reigns the universe. The, the resurrection is what got the last word in Jesus' life. And for us who trust him, every Christian story ends in hope. Every Christian story ends in rebirth and in new life. And so here's, here's my plea for you this morning, because some of you are in the midst of it, right? Like, some, some of you are in the midst of confusion and in the midst of heartache, and it's not, it's not past tense, this, this feeling that my life should have turned out differently than it has, Every note of your life will not end resolved. Every melody doesn't end resolved. There will be lingering questions that all of us must learn to live with and learn to die with. But, but one day, a trumpet will sound and we'll see that everything happened, not simply according to plan, but according to promise. That, that God had good intentions and all of this happened in fulfillment of that good plan and his good promise. So, so may we be a people who can maybe move a little bit past thinking that making sense of our messy families requires answers, apologies, or explanations. There's just no guarantee that there even is one. And there's no guarantee that the answer, if there is one, is one you would be content with. They had severe mental illness and that was the best they could do. That won't, that won't take the pain away. That won't resolve things. We can make sense of our messy families and find peace in the midst of them as we grow in awareness of the presence of God, a God who's felt what we felt, who loves us, and who's making all things new again for us. And, and so maybe what you need to do this morning, I, like that's what, that's what satisfies Job at the end. He's in the presence of God, and that's enough for him. And so maybe what we need to do, maybe what you need to do is think about what is that unresolved melody in your life? What is maybe a loss, a limitation that you feel right now, that you know you have, that, that you don't have to think a lot about? 
And what would it look like for us to, you know, write that on your bulletin or just hold it in your mind? And as we come forward to communion, to say, God, show me that you're holding this too. I'm coming forward to communion as a, a prayer of handing this back to the Lord and say, show me how you're holding this. Grant me confidence that you're carrying my story even now. Because listen, in communion, he has given us the evidence we need, the, the concrete anchoring experience to be reminded of his presence. On the night he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Some of you are here and you're thinking about your family, where you've come from, what, what you've been through. And you're saying, surely God doesn't love me. How could he love somebody who did something like this? How could he love somebody who had this done to them? And, and this is what we remember, that we have evidence of God's love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When you see the body of Christ broken for you, this is your evidence that he loves you and he's for you, no matter what's happened to you. After the meal, Jesus took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you, uh, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. Some of you are worried that because you believe in God and then you did all of that stuff after, that he's thrown you out because of what your last week looked like, because you've gone too far, you've done too much, and now you're out. You need to see the blood of Christ saying, this has made you safe with God. How do I know God loves you? Because the body of Christ is broken for you. How do I know that you're still in the family of God? Because the blood of Christ was shed for you. And then the real gift is he says, take this, eat it, and drink it to remember that I am with you, that I am one with you. And our prayer then becomes less, why did this happen? And more, where are you, God? Less, why did this happen? More, show me that you're here with me. Our tradition is uh, to come forward or there'll be stations in the back and rip off a piece of bread. You can dip it in wine or juice. Or the wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it um, and there'll be gluten-free elements to my left or right. I'll pray for us and then Christians, we can come remember our hope together. Let's pray.